attention to a passage in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. The last two verses of the chapter closes off the first half of the book, which is very distinct from the second half. We're continuing a series on our church covenant, and I'm doing a few topics that are kind of general about what is a covenant, what is the church, what is the church for, that kind of thing. And I'd like to focus attention on this passage Verses 20 and 21, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Again, our gracious God, we thank you for the freedom that we have to be here today. And as we come before you, we acknowledge that it is a great blessing to know that you yourself have revealed to us we can come into your presence as we meet together if we come through Jesus Christ. That in Christ you open your arms wide to receive us. And we are even told that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we come before your throne today, and we ask that you would, in fact, open our minds to understand this passage, and you would especially move our hearts that we might find ourselves lost in wonder and love and praise of you because of your greatness and because of your goodness. And so we offer you this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life has a way of regularly reminding us that we are pretty insignificant. Uh, When you stop to think about it, you and I are just a tiny speck of dust on a rock that's third from the sun in a universe of billions of suns and rocks. And here in this world, there are 7 million people. And how we live and what we do is going to make hardly a ripple in all of eternity on the surface of existence. So we sometimes ask ourselves the question, does it really make a difference how I live, whether I live or not? Does how we choose to live make any difference to anybody, really? You know, we're going to vote here in a month or so, and, and when we vote, I'm sure all of us, when you turn that paper ballot in, you watch it get sucked in by that machine, you wonder, is it just being eaten up inside there? You know? Uh, is it really going to go somewhere? Is my vote going to count? Is it going to be stolen by Russian hackers and used uh, for some illicit purpose? Uh, you know, will it really matter what we vote? Will it really matter how we live, uh, the kind of work that we do? I I talk to people in various professions and industries, and I've had many people tell me that their whole field of work is filled with uh, people who are either lazy or just getting by, you know, scamming the system somehow to make a buck. A lot of people just waiting for retirement. And so when one person works hard, does it really matter? If you're hardworking and honest, does it really matter whether we live a Christian life? In a culture that's madly rushing towards mediocrity 
and a culture in which uh, they're seeking who can go fastest to the lowest common denominator. Does it matter whether you and I choose to live a different life, the kind of life that is dedicated to Christ, a kind of life in which we make choices of honesty and integrity out of principles, not just because we're afraid that we're going to get caught? If we choose to live for him, is it going to make any difference to anyone? Well, so that we would be convinced on this last one at least that it really does matter how we live, if we live for Jesus or not, we have this one sentence, doxology, that ends the first half of the letter to the Ephesians. Now, I want to say at the outset, there's a difference between a doxology and a blessing. Uh, A blessing is something that is spoken in worship usually, and it goes from God to us. There aren't many blessings in the Bible. The priestly blessing is uh, listed in Numbers chapter 6. Or at the end of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's a word in which God is, so to speak, putting his blessing on us. It comes from God to us, whereas a doxology, while it has many elements that are similar, is a word that goes from us to God. A doxology is the church speaking to God words of praise. We commend his worthiness to be honored by others. The word doxa in Greek means glory, and logos means word, and doxology simply means a word of glory or giving an ascription of glory or honor to God himself. Some doxologies contain a prayer, requesting something from God. May he equip you, may he strengthen you, things like that. And and a pure doxology does not have any prayer. It's just calling people to give praise to God. And that's what this is. This is a pure doxology. A doxology has two parts. There's first a description of God, something about God that we are called to give him honor for. And second, there is um, a statement of, of uh, a calling us, a command to give that glory to God, along with a statement of how long that glory should last. So first, we are called to openly give him praise, why we give him praise, and second, we're called to give him praise on the basis of what the first half is. So first, this doxology says we must know the God we are praising. There's something about God that we should call to mind, think about, and respond to specific aspects of his character, distinctive facets of how he relates to us that we can identify, name, appreciate. And that's what verse 20 is about. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power of work within us. That is simply a description of God. But a specific aspect of God, he is able to do more than we can ask or think to accomplish his purposes. Now, it's important to note that these words follow on a prayer that's recorded in verses 14 through 19. And the prayer is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. And it it gives us instruction on how we should pray for other people as well. It's kind of an over-the-top prayer in which Paul asks that God would give his people an exceptional experience of himself. He prayed that they would be strengthened with power through the spirit in their inner being so that they could comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. And he ends it saying, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is a request that people would have an 
utterly heart-transforming experience of God. An orientation toward God in life in which they are so saturated with his love and his grace that they are left completely captivated by him. All of life is seen through the lenses of who God is and what he is like. And if we had just a taste of what this prayer is all about, it it would change our whole lives. It's the way that I ought to be praying for the staff and the leaders of the church. It's the way that small group leaders ought to be praying for their people, but we don't because it seems so over the top to pray for that. And so the question might arise, is he asking too much that you might be filled to all the fullness of God, that your life would be so utterly captivated and saturated with God's love and God's grace that you lived for him out of that? Has he asked too much? And the answer is no. And the reason we know it's no is that he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Neither the intensity of the requests that we could make all that we ask, nor even the unfettered imagination of the human mind in considering what God could do could ever uh, contain the power that God has to accomplish his purposes in this world. And the reason is because of his ability to grant us the resources that we need at every moment because it's according to the power that has at work within us. Now, that sentence by itself probably doesn't mean very much, the power or work within us, but in the book, it means a great deal. In the first chapter, he defines what this power is. What is the supreme evidence of the power of God, the most important thing that he has ever done that evidences his majesty and power, and it is the resurrection of Christ. It says in chapter 1, verse 19, it speaks of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then it defines it. The immeasurable greatness of his power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the measure of God's power is shown in the resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, his being seated even now at the right hand of God from which he reigns and awaits the consummation of all things. Christ's resurrection was the proof that what he had done on the cross was acceptable to the Father. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, how do we know that it, in fact, was finished? The entire purpose of God in paying for the sin of his people, we know that it was true because God raised him from the dead. And the resurrection is the vindication that his substitutionary death for sinners was acceptable. His reign in heaven, even now, attests to the host of heaven, we're told, that God in Christ has been victorious in winning lost people to himself and that Satan and his hosts will be defeated even though the end has not yet come. The final victory has already been won. And that's the power, he says, by which he is able to work within us. You see, what we don't ask for is we don't ask for the kind of power to live for Christ, to be saturated with his love and his grace so that we see life through the lenses of who Jesus is and what he has done. And because of that, we don't give praise to God with our hearts and our lives But that's the first part of a doxology. It's an acknowledgement of some aspect of God's character for which we should honor him. In this case, it is his incomparable ability to accomplish his purposes. 
an ability that our feeble requests and our meager imagination can never come to the end of. And just to contemplate that one thing, verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine. We could spend the rest of our time just thinking about that and what that means. How does that relate to us as individuals? It's not just talking about the eternal purpose of God in some grand scheme. It's talking about how he is able to work in and through an individual human life. The second part of the doxology is simply a call to respond to that. And that's why the second verse we're looking at, verse 21, begins with the word, To him be glory. And this is essentially a command. It's a a command to give God glory that ought to be given to the one who has such superlative power. So this is a call to do something. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. When you assess correctly the character of God and you understand his ability, then what is there that you shouldn't do in response to him when you realize God is the heavenly king not only the creator of all things on whom every person in existence now depends for his or her next breath. He's the loving, powerful, saving, keeping God, the one who protects us through our lives, the one who provides for us what we need as we move through life, and the one who at the cost of his only son paid for sin and by his spirit has so worked to draw us to himself so that we would freely receive the salvation that was won by Christ. And it's that God who is able, more than able, to accomplish anything he seeks to do in and through us. And when we think about that, the natural response is glory. Glory to God. Now, glory here means simply to ascribe to God that which he is worthy, his worthiness, to declare to other people, God is worthy to be praised and honored in every way. We honor him for his magnificence. It's the recognition that his, uh, it's only appropriate to honor someone whose character has been revealed to us and whose power has been revealed to us in this way, that he has the right to rule over all things. And it's a command that's given. A command is give glory to God, essentially. Now, you might think of the command to glorify God as um, being aimed at the whole person. Glorifying God is just not that person who stands up and says, praise God, or ends sentences with that, or something like that. It may be, but it's a command that we are meant to experience with the whole person. First of all, with the mind. I mean, that's why verse 20 is there. Verse 20 tells us that there's something about God that we need to grasp, or at least begin to grasp. We're told in the verse that it's beyond anything we could ask or imagine. But God is this God of superlative power who is able to accomplish his purposes. And we engage our minds with that, seeking to understand what that would mean. And when we engage our minds, we try to get it around the God who is able to do all that he intends. Then there's this automatic, if we actually engage it with our minds, automatic engagement of our heart or our emotions. When you recognize the power of the true and living God, you find yourself lost in wonder and praise, and love, and admiration, and even a sense of fear. Like, before such a God, we are at one and the same time lifted up so that we lift our our, uh, 
heads unveiled to look at God and give him praise. And at the very same time, the Bible says we are cast down because we recognize our meager resources of human be- as human beings. It's like we're like a little child with her nickel holding it out to a billionaire. And the billionaire could just scoff at her. And yet we do what we feel we must do, and the wonder of it all is that God honors it. God takes our nickel. And when we do that, our will immediately engages, and we truly give God glory. We hold out our nickel, so to speak. We speak his praise. We speak of how good he is, how gracious he is. But that's not where where we stop. We realize that our lives are meant to be engaged to reflect his glory in the things that we do and the way that we live, and all of life should reflect his worthiness. The whole person becomes engaged when you begin to grasp the glory of God. I want to know one odd thing about this doxology. Often in a, in a doxology or something of this nature, it will tell you where God's glory resides. And that it resides in Christ is not a surprise to us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, because after all, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is adored by the host of heaven and has been from all eternity before he was born of the Virgin Mary. The, the scriptures tell us, that God has tied his reputation to the reputation of Jesus Christ. The the New Testament clearly tells us that. In fact, on the last night of his life, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, and he began his prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In other words, God has tied his reputation to the reputation of Jesus. And in this world, from the moment of the Incarnation on, people's feelings about Jesus, their response to Jesus is directly related to their experience of God and their understanding of God because God has tied his reputation to the reputation of Jesus. But the passage says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And he puts them by the word and like right next to each other. And it makes us ask, why in the world would God tie his glory to the church? The church is made up of human beings, redeemed human beings, granted, but just creatures. But the amazing thing is God has tied his reputation not only to Jesus Christ, but also to the church, the body of Christ on earth. As I said last week, in this book of Ephesians, God pictures the church as being one body with Christ, and that is every single person who is united to Christ by faith is a member of this body. Christ, the head, rules from heaven and guides and directs and is the source of the life of the church, but the church is the representative of Christ in this world. It's how he continues his ministry even after his departure physically from the earth. He's present through the church. So when the church lives out its heavenly calling to be the presence of Jesus in a fallen world, then God's standing in the eyes of people is enhanced. And conversely, when the church at any time forsakes its holy purpose and focuses instead on other things, then God's standing in the eyes of the world and the people of this world is tarnished. We as Christians who make up the church, we can either spend our time pointing people by the things that we say and the way that we live 
to God, to God's greatness, to God's power, his importance, his authority, his grace, or we can point people to ourselves. And how clever and attractive and relevant and good we are. Those are the choices that we make as we move through life. And God says that his glory is directly tied to the way Christian people live. We either live to the glory of God or we don't. And his reputation is either enhanced or tarnished as a result. So do you ever wonder whether it matters how you live? In a world of 7 billion people, in a universe of billions of stars, do you ever become discouraged and feel that you are powerless to make any difference in this mad world, when you choose to pray or you choose to do something honest when you won't get caught even if you're dishonest because you have a sense of God's presence in life, when you read his word, when you control your impulses at some point to do what is right, um, is your life going to make any difference? And this passage tells us that yes, it does. It makes difference far beyond what you could imagine because God has tied his reputation in this world not only to Jesus Christ, but to the church, meaning the people of God in local communities like this one gathered together for the purpose of worship and witness. What he does in and through us in even the most mundane choices of life either reflects his glory or detracts from it. And that means our choices have eternal significance. And the way that we live matters more than we can imagine. It matters far more than much of the actions of nations and leaders and experts. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. And there's one final word in which the whole church speaks. Heaven and earth, living and dead, they all join together. Like the church triumphant, as it's often said, those who have gone before us in the faith, who are presently in heaven at the right hand of God, reigning with Christ, freed from sin, And those of us on earth, sometimes called the church militant, as we seek to live for him and we feel poor and struggling and marginalized, but we look to the power of God, the whole church joins together to utter the final word, amen, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, as we come before you, we thank you that this is your word to us today, that you call us in the way that we live and the way that we think, to reflect your glory. You have said that your glory, your splendor, your fame in the eyes of the people of this world is directly tied not only to Christ himself, but also to the people of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. We pray that you would so move in our hearts that we might find ourselves willing and, as we look to you, able to live for you forthrightly, openly, and honestly. We pray this in Jesus' name.